Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast, and from that music you hear in the background, you know that we are live. The band is together again here in Manchester, Connecticut, and uh, we've begun our worldwide tour. I, actually, not yet. <laughs> we are we are planning on that. And uh, I know that uh, the, my friends out in the uh, Northwest would love to have us come out. They've already talked to, to me about the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, places where we could have the show. And, and, and you, you guys actually have groupies out there. You don't even know it. They're just people out there who just think you're wonderful and uh, great and uh, prefer you to me. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor, and I'm currently serving a church in Vancouver, Washington. Not Van- Brit- in British Columbia, but Vancouver, Washington. The real Vancouver. And uh, it's right across the river from Portland. Yes, that Portland in Oregon. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I made it through the riots. No one harmed me at all. By the way, um, things are really overstated. <laughs> Portland's a fine place. You know, if you go into the, a particular part of the city at the wrong time of day or night, you'll see some things. But generally speaking, people are actually, you know, productive citizens and going to work and doing things and shopping and all that kind of stuff. But you probably already knew that unless you watch certain programs and that's all you know about <laughs> Portland is the riots. But anyway, uh, enough of all that. Uh, it, the church I serve is uh, the uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, and you are welcome to attend anytime. I won't be there this coming Sunday, though, but this show will be po- you know, uh, posted after that Sunday anyway, so, eh, <laughs> so there you go. And, uh, well, that's enough about me. So how about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am currently a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University until the end of this semester. Woo-hoo! And uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. So now the word is out. It's official. <laughs> it's we official. can talk about it. All right. And they, what are they going to do to you now? Fire you? <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, we may have groupies all over the place, but they aren't at my university. <laughs> That's too bad for them. Tom. Tom Price, systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, uh, teaching both at a variety of places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell, and still, uh, so far, so good. <laughs> but you never know when you'll be retiring <laughs> so, or, or, or pushed into it. So, so we're always open to uh, possibilities, uh, let's put it that way. But I'm going to be writing this summer. We'll yeah. talk more about that as we get there. And by the way, I didn't mention, but uh, both Glenn and I had a tiny little uh, blurb in the most recent, what is the name of the magazine? Uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast. I don't remember what they called it, but their magazine. Their magazine. So our audience out there um, should, should know better than us um, because we always catch on a little late. But we have some uh, little article on joy there and amongst other articles with Doug Wilson and the rest of the gang. But I thought I'd throw it out there. They were very proud of that. uh. Yeah, you you guys out there in podcast land ought to subscribe. It's a great publication. Anyway, um, thanks, Tom. Well, um, why don't we jump into the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, it's my, my, my day, by the way. I, I come from the West bearing the topic of the day. <laughs> and uh, it's individualism. I want to talk about individualism. And uh, the, the, the prompt of my, my uh, reflections on individualism is, an, is a review of, of Carl Truman's new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it's reviewed uh, in a uh, really, yeah, I think, um, insightful review by uh, Ben Dunson. Uh, and uh, the title of his review is Plastic Man. But... As I, as I read the review, I thought, you know, this, this stuff that Carl is uh, treating here is, is really kind of well-plowed ground. This is stuff that people who have some background in the history of Western thought, particularly in the modern era, is, you know, folks are pretty familiar with this stuff. The problem is, is that hardly anybody outside of the, the you, know, you know, our little cadre of people who actually have studied this stuff know anything about it, but they're being swept along by it. On, they, they think what they think what they're doing is common sense, but from this the, from the historical perspective, it's it's novel, it's kind of insane, and it's a departure from the common sense of the past. But as I as I thought about uh, Carl's treatment, he he gets into you know uh, various various uh, writers uh, in his treatment. 
um, uh, wh- who there, there was a uh, Reef. Who is the guy who is a is it Paul Reef? A guy who wrote. Oh, that's, that's um, about Philip the, Reef. Philip, Philip Reef. Reef. Yeah, yeah about yeah. the uh, therapeutic. Therapeutic self. Yeah. yeah. So he's getting into the therapeutic stuff, and I thought to myself, you know, this this just sounds like Habits of the Heart for Robert Bella. You know, that great mm-hmm. book in the 1980s was the uh, work of the, the the group of sociologists. You know, there are, from my perspective as a historian, there are some really real advantages to living in an era of cultural illiterates <laughs> because you can pull out things from just a few decades ago and they will seem fresh and new. That's right, that's right. And you, and you look really smart. Yep. <laughs> and you can, you can pull, pull stuff out that the, you know, the actual literate enlightened would have known where it was coming from and rejected today. They have no clue what it is. So oh, you, could actually, it. you could actually uh, also uh, train minds in new directions. That's right. Yeah, you know, like there are various works that, you know, I, I've worked with in my writing, you know, like I, just today I was just reviewing Xenophon's Oikonomikos and uh, his book on household management, you know, it's a, it's a Socratic dialogue. And, and uh, when people uh, kind of refer to it in an offhanded way, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to know whether or not they actually have read it or not, you know, just based on the kind of remarks. If it's boilerplate, you know, sort of treatment of say you know patriarchy or whatever, you know that they've not read the book or read the read the dialogue, because there's all sorts of stuff in the dialogue that actually undermines that interpretation. But getting back to habits of the heart, so Robert Bella uh, led a team of sociologists who did field research, and what they wanted to to to, to understand was the relationship between individualism and commitment. That's by the way the subtitle of the book. Uh, individualism and commitment in American life. I don't know if it's still in, you know, in print, uh, but it was a bestseller back in the 80s. I'm, I think probably like mid-80s, maybe 84, 85, 86. In fact, I've got the book right here. Why don't I look in the front? Uh, that's, that's an idea. Look in the front. I mean, it was reviewed by everybody. Publishers Weekly, Los Angeles Times, uh, you know, the Times Higher Education Supplement. So, you know, it was a big deal when it came out. 85, there you go. So, um, anyway, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about, the, you know, what do we mean when we talk about individualism? What, what is individualism? Then I would like to get into the, uh, the sociologists in, in this book and their treatment. I'll just say Bella, but he has, you know, a lot of people who helped him with this, but I'll just refer this, to this as Bella's book. Um, and uh, get into his uh, taxonomy of American individualism, and he identifies different schools of thought or different ways of being an individual in America, which I think might catch by, people by surprise. And g- I'll give you my, my thoughts on that. But why don't, why don't we just jump off uh, or jump you know, from the starting point of, jump into it from the starting point. Uh, what, is, what, are we, what are we talking about when we talk about individualism? I mean, is... Is this uh, something new? I mean, is it, is, it, is it a recent development? If, if it's always been, you know, understood, you know, if we've always had uh, what we refer to as individualism, why does it seem like it's a new thing? Any, any thoughts? You know, I, I immediately go to uh, the Swiss art historian from the 19th century, Jakob Burkhardt, and this is not American individualism. But Burkhart said that um, he, he had wrote a book on the, the civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. Um, and it was in some ways sort of a groundbreaking book, but what it really did was just sort of coalesce the thinking on the Renaissance from the period. It really encapsulated it. And it really dominated discussions of the Renaissance from that time on. And one of the things that he argued is that the Renaissance was the time of the discovery of the individual. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't and, it? And he said that you know prior to this, medieval people thought of themselves as a member of a group, as a member of a, right. a tribe, a, a, a town, a culture or something like that. They didn't think of themselves as individuals. Right. And in the Renaissance, they discovered the individual. Now, I would say that that's patent nonsense because in the Middle Ages, everybody knew you stood one-on-one before God and answered to him personally. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shoots down to me the idea that individualism was invented in the Renaissance. But I think, though, that it points toward 
a different, you know, with Burkhart's analysis, which like I said was wrong, uh, points toward a, 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 the first step toward a development of a, of a definition of individualism, which is seeing yourself primarily as a unique person more than as a representative of a group or as a part of a, uh, a collective of some sort. Right, right. That reminds me of uh, Harold Bloom's book uh, on Shakespeare, The Invention of the Individual. I think that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same, 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 same idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you see all the shifts going on there. I mean, you, you already in the Middle e- Evil period, when you're talking about sort of universals and what it means to be a human being and a particular instantiation of it, shifting to the particular being the center of focus and action, you you flesh that out over time. I think the Renaissance was really capturing that, where it, where I think what what Christianity brings and brought to, especially the the well, the world, if you will, is a, a new kind of way of looking at the dignity of the human being individually in relation to God and also in relationship to everything else. And so the personality took on significance. But what happens, I think, as we creep towards individualism is the individual almost becomes the center of what's fascinating and interesting Yeah. about it. Even in yeah. theology, for example, you're shifting away from God being fascinating for God's own sake to the human being made in the image of God now starting to to become fascinating and couple that with every distinct particular individual is unique with this nominalist strand and then you get this kind of a concentration of human beings each individually being fascinating in yeah. their own let's, way. Let's kind of break that down a little bit Tom because uh, I think it's worth exploring uh, you, you in an offhanded way you mentioned nominalism now I think you know, I, what I hear you saying when you when you refer to nominalism within the framework of you know understanding individualism is nominalism sort of gets rid of the universal categories, just just generally speaking about everything, and everything is particularized. Everything is so like we can't talk about leaves being kind of sort of instantiations of leafness. That's Instead, right. we just talk about each individual leaf, leaf. being its own thing. And so, any way of categorizing it now is more convention or or social construct than dealing with a real reality to which all these things participate in. Yeah, and, and many times we've gone back and forth about the Platonic approach or the Aristotelian approach, you know, how you get to the universals, but both believed that there were universals that you could, you could arrive at. The question was, you know, how do you go about it? But, but I think that's the thing, you know, so if every particular person is like a universe unto itself, you know, with its own kind of internal laws, then... Uh, the question then is not what makes you in, uh, unique, but then how do you possibly relate to anybody else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that, right? and that starts to bully up as you get into the current period, the emphasis on everyone almost demanding to be related to in light of their own self definition. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Although you have to be careful there because with intersectionality, which we should probably hold off on for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, but it, with intersectionality, you've really got to approach it from a different direction. That's right. And it, and it gets messy and I get this is down the road, but it, it's not it, it's individualism, but it starts to get tribalized again. But we will get to that. Yeah. yeah. Now, getting back to the to the Christian roots and I think uh, of individualism, because I do think when we think about I think think it the individual uh, in a positive way and constructively today, I think we can look back to the incarnation. You know, there we have an individual, you know, Christ. And uh, we have someone who genuinely is unique. <laughs> he is the God-man. So uh, there's something about his embodied life that's significant that we study and so forth. That's, that's one thing. But also Augustine and the confessions. I've heard, uh, you know, secular scholars say that uh, the Confessions is the first true autobiography in the history of the world. Yeah. He I gives us an inner, inner look at his inner life. I heard someone, uh, or read someone who said that in the Confessions, Augustine is the first person in history to use the word I the way a modern person does. That's right. Yeah, when you read Confessions, now he might not be your favorite cup of tea, mm-hmm. you know. Now, I enjoy reading Augustine. Mm-hmm. There are points where he gets a little bit, I don't know, sappy for me, but... But the uh, but in terms of what you just said, when I read him, I do feel like I'm reading someone who might be you know next door. Maybe he lived a couple hundred years ago, <laughs> but somebody a lot closer to you or me than say when I'm reading some some other ancient author. 
<laughs> so interesting stuff. Now, back to Habits of the Heart. Um, and what they're interested in is American life. So this isn't just modern world. They're thinking about Americans. And they have a very interesting approach. Um, first of all, they do a lot of surveys. You know, these are sociologists, after all. And so, you know what sociologists actually are? Is they're, they're kind of political philosophers who kind of pretend to be scientists. That's my, that's my take on them. But, and then they, they I, I have a few others, but we'll skip mine. <laughs> but generally what they do is they have a thesis and they go out and they find the proof for it. So, but I, I don't think that they were off when it came to their analysis of American culture in the, in the 80s. And I think what concerned them then is even more the case today. So let me give you a little picture of what I'm talking about. So they identified four strains of American individualism. Two they identify as positive and two as negative. What they were concerned about is the growing cultural or sort of anti-culture uh, and its influence on American life from the two negative ways of approaching the individual or thinking about the individual. So here they are, and they, and they helpfully give you historic sort of you know, personalities of people from the past who embody the, the, the outlook that they're talking about. The, f the first is biblical individualism. And for, for, for biblical individualism, they identify Cotton Mather, which makes a lot of sense. And then there's Republican individualism, and that's a second form of positive individualism. And for, for, for that, to, to exemplify that uh, outlook, it's Thomas Jefferson. Utilitarian individualism, which is one of the negative ones, is Ben Franklin. Now, if we've got a lot of Ben Franklin fans out there, I'm sorry, but <laughs> Ben is not what you, what you read about in Poor Richard's Almanac. He was not that guy. He was a very, well, we'll get into it. <laughs> but then uh, the third is expressive individualism and Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman, poet. Now, it's no coincidence that expressive individualism and Walt Whitman are, you know, is the most recent, and biblical individualism is the furthest in the past. Okay? So Republican individualism and biblical individualism are in decline, and uh, utilitarian individualism and expressive individualism are ascendant. Now, how, does this, uh, how, does, how do these values uh, get assigned to these various, out, these various approaches to the individual? Well, biblical individualism and republican individualism have this in common. The individual finds himself or herself through serving the community. So the, the biblical, obviously, is, is the body image that Paul uses in, you know, in, in, in Corinthians where he talks about you know, one is an eye, one is a hand, so forth. So there's an individual this hand, this eye, whatever, but, but our lives uh, add up to something bigger than ourselves. Our lives add up to the body of Christ, right? So we're participating uh, in the life of Christ and through our, our mutual regard and service and even as we turn to the world and attempt to serve those outside the church, uh, we are the body acting as the body of Christ and we need each other to do what we, what we are called to do. So that's biblical individualism. Republican individualism uh, really is the classical understanding of the individual in the community. This is sort of the idea that the polis, the city, is the place that we all depend on. We're social animals, as Aristotle put it. And uh, we find our, our, our place, again, in terms of how we serve our community. What's different between these two, obviously, is that we're not talking about the, the biblically uh, revealed God, uh, you know, in terms of how we relate to God and as his people. Instead, we're talking about what we might call, but I, don't, I think this is a little misleading, we might say uh, is a more secular way of thinking about it. But nevertheless, uh, you get involved in your community. You know, this, these, these, the people who think in, these, in this way would be, you know, the people who work for the, you know, who volunteer to be, you know, like a director of the Lions Club, you know, or some community organization. You know, even, even get involved with politics, maybe uh, become a, a local, you know, councilman or something like that. Or maybe just volunteer down at the library. These are people who say, you know, my, my place in the world, uh, you know, my sense of self is uh, arrived at through this sort of social engagement that I'm, I'm, I'm involved in. And I want to be a contributor. I don't want to just be a, a taker. Now, we all receive 
but I also want to give. You know, that's, that's the key. Now, uh, so those are the two positive forms of individualism, according to Bella. Uh, the negative forms of individualism are utilitarian individualism and expressive individualism. So utilitarian individualism is essentially the community it has to justify itself to the individual. And it's justified to the individual insofar as it helps the individual achieve his or her goals. So it's, it's got utility. The community has utility in this sense. Uh, and the example given is Ben Franklin. Now, that people who know a little bit about Franklin might object. I mean, after all, he you know, was involved in all kinds of social sort of uh, community endeavors in, in different ways. And I'd say that's, that's fair. But I also think that if we want to think, if we want to, if we want to see who was the father of the self-help book, you know, who was the, you know, sort of like the guy who wrote the first one, at least in America, it's probably Franklin. You know, it's all about kind of, you know, uh, understanding how you can kind of get ahead. And even as Franklin talked about many of his, um, you know, positive contributions to, to the city of Philadelphia, as you read him, I mean, you can't miss that. Franklin sees how he's getting, you know, getting something out of this. <laughs> you know, he's, 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 yeah, he's doing things, but there's, there's a sense in which it's always Franklin who seems to kind of get ahead, you know, in the process. Hmm. So, uh, anyway, well, like, to give an example of this, you remember, remember Franklin was the publisher of, um, oh, uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield. Uh, so, right. now, was, was, was Franklin a believer? No! <laughs> what Franklin saw was a great opportunity to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> and he even made fun of himself in the process. And he even praised uh, Whitfield. There, there's that great story he tells when Whitfield is make, you know, taking an offering for an orphanage. You remember this one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to tell it, Clint? Well, long story short, Franklin said that he had absolutely no intention at all of giving any money, but he just wanted to hear Whitfield preach and and watch what was going on and so on. And by the end of it, he'd emptied his pockets. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, and, he, he, and of course, the way Franklin tells us, he says, first I was going to give a pence, and then I was going to give a shilling. <laughs> it just takes you up, and, you know, he's like, I'm emptying my pockets, throwing it in the dog. <laughs> but even then, Franklin made a mint off of Whitfield. Hmm. He, he sold tons and tons of books. So... Anyway, this kind of gives you that. Now, now the, the last, and by the way, the, who is the sort of the personification of, of the first three? Well, the personification, obviously, of the first might be the, a pastor, might be a, a, a nun, might be someone who's involved in some kind of charitable work in a hospital or, you know, in a prison system or something like that, who's serving the world or serving the church as a deacon or an elder. Uh, and through that, uh, activity of putting the community first discovers who he or she is, hmm. right? Uh, in the second case, you know, who, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about people who serve the community, maybe, you know, through being on the board of the library or maybe running for office, that kind of thing. Uh, in the case of Franklin uh, and people who are uh, utilitarian individualists, the personification that Bella and his colleagues pr present is the entrepreneur. It'd be Elon Musk. Hmm. Elon Musk is the uh, utilitarian individualist. Now you could say, well, think about all the great things Elon Musk has done. You know, and you'd say, yeah, yeah, but uh, again, he's using opportunities to, well, in his words, maybe get us to another planet, yeah, <laughs> help the human species survive. But Musk features very prominently in anything Musk says. Yeah. In other words, he's a little bit like Trump. Just got, <laughs> just got a different approach, sort of different bedside manner. Uh, the third, uh, the third persona uh, who, who embodies or exemplifies, uh, the, I'm sorry, the fourth uh, approach or outlook, uh, and this is expressive individualism, is Walt Whitman. You know, what's that? Uh, leaves of grass or fields of no? It's leaves of. Leaves of Grass. Grass. Leaves of Grass was his, uh, his work. But anyway, this is very much uh, in the romantic mode and romantic tradition, sort of the, uh, the idea that <clears throat> essentially it's your emotive self, yeah. not your rational self, but your emotive self, not your social self. So you can think about it that way. The, you know, when we, what do we mean when we're talking about individualism? Is it your 
biblical, theological, biblical self, you know, your religious self that defines you? Is it your social self, your political self that defines you? Is it your acquisitive, you know, you know, builder self that defines you? Or is it your emotive self, how you feel? And there's something, that yeah, and there's something that's very, I mean, in all of them, there's a certain kind of self determination, but there is almost a self definition the further you move towards where, yeah. where yeah. that experience, that sense of self, that sense of con consciousness and that experiencing conscience consciousness becomes something that we, we almost legislate reality for ourselves. That's yeah. what the expressive side of it. Yeah, yeah. Now with the expressive self, so with the expressive self, everyone is Walt Whitman, everyone's a poet. Yeah. And poesis is self making, you know, yeah. the idea that uh, you know, my greatest work of art is me. Yeah, I'm, I'm a walking first piece of art. That's, That's right. I'm making myself every day. And tomorrow yeah. I may be. And you know, Whitman was accused of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, if I remember correctly, he was accused of of, of contradicting himself. <laughs> And uh, he said, no matter, I embody multitudes. That's, that's, right. a, that's a, uh, a paraphrase. I don't think that's exactly yeah. the way he said it, but it gets the point across. But this fluidity of a self, it's becoming. And, yeah. and, and Very there, there is no telos other than, other than sort of, you know, one's experiencing self. Yeah. Um, so I think that you know, listeners in podcast land know where this is going. Mm -hmm. So this was 1985, and they were concerned. They felt that the two uh, forms of individualism that actually built up community, were social in nature, were in decline. And the forms of individualism which were selfish and self-centered, narcissistic, were ascendant. Now, uh, this, this society has to serve the individual by endorsing whatever the individual says about him or herself. And that's that, what Charles Taylor often talked about, is that, that bringing into rec recognition now becomes something that authenticates a expressive self. That's it. So to have others recognize it, to f the failure of others to recognize is almost an assault on our expression. Yeah, it's like kind of a violence. But this is the paradox of expressive individualism. Now the community is more necessary than ever. And this is, yeah, this is, yeah, this is the, and this is the way that, the, you know, the postmodern political apparatus, if you will, ingeniously, if not demonically, came in and retribalized. Yes, and and it demonstrates really just how, I, I, I just think, uh, illiterate our intellectuals, uh, our into, you know, sort of public intellectuals are today. Yeah. I don't think we we kind of quipped early on in the show about being original because we just remember things that people wrote 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But all this stuff was, they saw it coming. Everybody saw it coming. Yeah. You know, we think about abolition of man with C.S. Lewis, he saw it coming. We think yeah. about, you know, uh, individualism kind of run amok. We can think yeah. of, you know, the culture of narcissism by, you know, Christopher Lash. By the way, that's another great book we ought to uh, talk about sometime. And then this, which was written, you know, published within a few years of culture of narcissism. I think culture of narcissism was like 78, maybe, maybe yeah. 79, 80, something like that. Anyway, so everybody was worried. <laughs> and all the worries have been, have been proven to be tr true. <laughs> they, they, right. they, were, they were really things you should have been worried about. But now we can't even remember that we were worried. That's right. Well, it's, I remember even more on a more lay kind of intellectual training levels, Francis Schaeffer's later work. In, oh, yeah. in, uh, um, how, do we, how Then Shall We Live? His video series. You watch the, the last three or four of those stand out in my mind from reading in the 80s. Right. Don't want to date myself, but <laughs> but he was always talking about what's going to happen when this sort of at this time he called it a Christian consensus starts to to become sentimental and then govern nothing. Well, what's filling that vacuum? And it, right. a, a, a rise of elites are going to basically come and fill that gap, and they're arbitrarily going to create these absolutes, and these are going to start to become. I mean, he, these people were telling the, the church. Yeah. Much less the intellectual community, this stuff was there. Right. I mean, I remember in, when I was studying through a lot of the, the more postmodern thinkers in, in Oxford, I mean, I was aware it was there and I understood, it, but there was, I think there was still something not real to me that people were really going to take this stuff seriously. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that was my big naivety. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, 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 yeah, I thought we all thought that common sense would, would prevail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how foolish. <laughs> you know, people talk about things being on a pendulum. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, pendulum swings one way, then it swings the other, and so on. And so if it goes too far in one direction, don't worry, it'll correct. The problem with that is that sometimes when it swings too far in one direction, it breaks off the hub yeah, and yeah. keeps flying. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. right now, I have a feeling the pendulum is in uh, ballistic freefall. Yeah, yeah, and there are certain institutions, ironically, which is a bad word for an expressive individualist. There are certain institutions that make uh, expressive individualism plausible. Yeah. You know, when people vote, I, I think people actually have sort of a deep understanding of this because expressive individualism, or expressive individualists all seem to vote a certain way. And it's uh, for a growth of the welfare state so that the choices that they make that don't, do not serve the community or even themselves, uh, you know, in the long term, uh, are mitigated and the, uh, the the effects are ameliorated and spread out over the total population, and so people can kind of have a, well, you know, a mulligan or like uh, have a kind of a, a kind of declare bankruptcy in a sense and say, well, I don't have to pay for any of my choices. There are going to be these institutions that take care of me when I, you know, the chickens come home to the roosters, so to speak. Well, in one of the, you know, the, one of the kind of strategic political um, philosophies, if you will, is such that it can capitalize on this in a way that it can advance all of the other things by making people feel that they're being liberated by being able to have a parameter where they can self-define. So if we give everyone this, um, this space to define themselves however they want to do it and we enforce that, we get their loyalty to all these these other kinds of things, and then spill that over. I mean, the church and it's it, you talk about illiteracy. Um, the church is first of all, it's adopted hook, line, and sinker, a a kind of individualism that is antithetical. To well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I think that you can define most uh, church plants in the last. 30 years as being either expressive individualist or utilitarian. Absolutely. They're, they're working off of, and this is one of the things, I mean, originally when I started out doing systematic theology, that strong focus, which I think has to be the God-centered and origin and ends of all things. But what you see is where that problem sits is, is the, 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 the anthropological um, correlate to that. Mm-hmm. What is the image of God in this case? And what you see already is, is um, especially in the popular um, world of social media and all, you see everyone scoring points on where they fall on who's the good guys who's the oppressor already buying into of course the the trends of the culture but also so far removed from christian anthropology that they don't even know what they're they're defending has they, nothing to do with they, they couldn't even tell you what anthropology means that's right oh yeah oh wait it's, it's since it's anthros and has uh, it's man it's patriarchy that's gotten rid the of patriarchy that. again gotta get rid of that word gotta get rid of it it's just yeah <laughs> but yeah, wild stuff. But one, of, but this is, an, and I think what you see here, though, is it, it, you you start to see, and we we've all seen it, the inability for people to to distinguish their their Christian faith in in the kind of absolute commitments that that are central to it, the life of holiness, um, to to being nothing more than um, adaptations of this religion of the self. Expression, you know, the yoga self, if you will, and the, that's, yeah. right. that's right, the yoga self. I got, we got to, we, we got to brand that. <laughs> Tom Price, the, the yoga self. The yoga. Now, now the, disrupt the, your lo- yoga self. <laughs> well, but the yoga self. I mean, when we, uh, I, I, a couple directions I'd like to take this because whenever we see, say, uh, Madison Avenue, which is the you know the advertising part of New York City, right? So the the ad men or the ad. I don't know, persons or whatever they got now. <laughs> they add people. Whenever they want to convey some sense of uh, religiosity, what forms or what images do they, do they use? They always use the person in the, in the lotus position. They never show somebody in a church receiving communion. They never see a, a, you never see a baptism. You never see uh, even somebody you know, with a Bible open and reading. You, you, know, uh, you don't even see you know, Jewish or Islamic or even Hindu expressions. It's always the yoga, the lotus position. And what do we know about that? If there was a, uh, an outlook that was uh, sort of like um, kind of inwardly turned, it's that. You know, when we look at the, at the, at the yoga self, 
what's what's the person in doing? The eyes are closed, you know, and it's a turning in on the self. Yeah. Now, now but, anybody but, who understands Buddhism knows it's the obliteration of the self. That's the goal, but not popular uh, New Age that's right. stuff. That's right. So, yeah, and it's similar to postmodernism. It is the obliteration of the self, but not popular postmodernism. Right, I mean, right. They're, they're, I mean, this is... Was, I was reading George Grant, not the pastor. Yeah, down in New York. <laughs> that's right. right. I was reading the uh, Canadian philosopher. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking yeah. about, yeah. And so one of the things he was talking about, his great essay, I think it's called, I think it's called Time and Eternity. They're all running together in my head right now. But um, one of the things he's talking about in that is the shift from, from Christ, the Christian vision to, to what we've, we end up today. But he says it really starts with a, a radical distinction between what used to be a, a soul and now is a self. Yeah, wow. And, and I really yeah, I was thinking, yeah. I mean, actually one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking of doing is already putting together a class on contemporary views of the self and then, then retrieving a lot of this because I think that's worth exploring a lot. Yeah. And he doesn't unpack it a lot there, but he definitely gives someone a, yeah. a book idea. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, a book idea to a guy named Tom Price. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Adding one more to the list. But I think there, I mean, I think this is, I mean, this is, very fundamental. I think we've 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 lost in many cases, even as we've kind of carried on some of the biblical language within within our churches, we've lost a lot of the the core aspects. Well, this is a thing that I think people can be easily uh, sort of duped by. So, like, uh, you know, if you if you are a uh, conservative Protestant and you go to a mainline evangelical or not a evangelical but a mainline church, mainline Protestant church, you'll hear a number of things that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you'll you'll be familiar with, um, but uh, what they mean by them, there are new there are new assigned meanings to everything that's being s- stated. Yeah. So, um, if you think that that only happened in the main line, you're you're <laughs> mistaken. Right. It's happened in evangelicalism, particularly in the kinds of evangelicalism that we've been talking about, utilitarian and expressive. And I think this is, I mean, I'm not original with this, but we hear it all the time, but I think where we really see it is that quick step from the spiritual to the therapeutic yes. in, a very, in a very kind of secular therapy sense of the word. Not that there isn't a validity to the therapeutic once we understand the human being in proper Therapy just means the healing. healing. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's totally cut off from from genuine care of souls in the in the pastoral office and ministerial office. And now the pastor. I mean, I remember some years ago. Uh, I don't remember the name of the book. Do you remember this one? The secular priest. I mean, it was no. basically. I think it was a, it was Freud's definition for what the therapist was. And he, okay. In in the in the idea in the book, and again, I don't know the historical accuracy, but it was that Freud almost picks up this idea of being the therapist from the ministerial. Oh office. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's just he's just baptizing, or he's what, what what's the reversal of baptism? Debaptism. <laughs> taking taking the baby out of the water. That's right, right, that's right. right. Uh, reversing Not, it. Right, right, right. Let's dry that baby off. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Uh, but you, 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 and I think you see, I mean, we've increasingly seen over the years, I have, is this, this shift from, I'll, I'll just give you an example of how stark it was. I remember the time um, in Oxford finishing my doctoral work, I stayed in the, the Eastern Orthodox, they housed. Right, sure. And um, when, you, when you went, I'm not saying it hasn't, doesn't slip in there either. I'm not trying to find yeah, purity know, points right, here. Right, right. But I remember f- first evening there, oh, come down, we're doing Jesus prayer come down, we're, we're focusing on what it means to, I mean, the classic Christian practices of focusing on Christ and spirituality. Right, right. Those are nowhere anymore, mm. other than some prayer, and most of that tends to be prayer not directed towards our mm. conversion to, to God, right. but is, is about how we are made whole in a therapeutic sense. Right, right. And um, I understand the Western uh, antecedents to that, but I think what, what ends up happening is it's sort of what I think Philip Reef is on to. Um, right. the, the whole um, proper spiritual setting in which therapy is able to carry out its real work right. has been ripped from it in its classic Christian spirituality and now is, is being filled with this kind of expressivist. Yeah, and it's well, everywhere. And, and, and along with that, we can... I mean, a, a lot of fundamental problem is not only loss of anthropology, it's a complete redefinition of homartology, mm, which yep. is a rather obscure sin. word meaning the doctrine of sin. Yep, yeah. Um, you know, if you look at the culture, what mm-hmm. they want, uh, well, particularly prior to the current 
um, Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. What, what the culture was really clamoring for was unrestricted personal freedom, meaning unrestricted personal sexual freedom, yeah, right. enforced by riv- rigid government regulation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah, that fun. was my point earlier. But a lot of that thinking has, you know, then, then so that's sort of morphed into victim status. Mm-hmm. And what it's done is in the culture, the only idea that's left of something that's truly wrong or evil is oppression. Mm-hmm. And thus the oppressed are innocent, the oppressors are guilty. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same thing is now moving into the evangelical churches. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Yes. One of the things related to that that I think is intriguing is, uh, is uh, the loss of uh, a, a concept of virtue that has nothing to do yeah. with this, this oppressor-oppressed rubric. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, so um, perhaps your oppression is due to the fact that somebody is better than you at something and it makes you unhappy. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, well, Maybe that's the source of your oppression. It Maybe actually, it's just envy. It actually goes a step further. Um, anytime, in, in the theory, uh, functionally, they'll never say this, but anytime there's a disparity of outcomes between two different groups, it must be caused by oppression. Right. So right. the fact that children, by cross-cultural meta-studies, children do best in families with married biological parents. Right. Uh, that's true universally. Well, that is only because we live in a patriarchal society that has normalized that form of marriage and that if society were truly equal, then any possible configuration of households would have the same results. Yeah, I've actually heard people with a straight face uh, and, uh, and, and, and sort of willing to take it to, to mm. this logical conclusion uh, propose that we really need to abolish yeah. The traditional household, in order to you know produce equality of outcomes, yeah, right. because if this gives you some kind of advantage, then well, we can't have that. But it's it's better that we're all imbeciles, yeah, and that yeah. we're all unproductive yeah. and sort of wrapped up in our own vices than to have any virtuous people at all. Yeah, yeah. and I and I think what I mean, one of the things I think you know the the kind of courage that's missing in the church today is the is the ability to push back to use their language on terms like um, equity and equality because they're they're thin air terms yeah don't don't steal them from from a, a, a tradition shaped by christianity and and western society to uh, to cut its roots off and then act like you, you that word has any kind of any yeah. kind of meaning, right? It doesn't. And if you're going to actually make a moral case that justifies, especially use of violence and force for others to conform to it, you've got to do more than just pos- this is this is ethical positivism. I, you know, I, I've seen the kind of force presentation and the destruction these ideas are having, but I, I tend to be on the side to think they're so thin and incapable as categories for dealing with reality that it, it's it. It doesn't have long teeth. It, well, it's, it's well I, just, I agree. Yeah. My, my fear is that because we have so much equity, yeah. cultural and yeah. actual you know, monetary equity, and yeah. the world is structured in such a way so as to... If the, if the, United, States, if the United States were to uh, enter into a, a significant decline, it would affect the entire world in a very negative yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that we have a lot of uh, people who will kind of engage in brinkmanship uh, for a long, long time. You know, an example of how this can, can work in a different way, when mm-hmm. you think about, you know, the uh, subprime mortgage crisis back in 2008, mm-hmm. basically the United States bailed out, mm-hmm. bailed out all these stupid bankers. So essentially we said, uh, not only are we going to bail you out, we're going to let you take even more money. You know, you're all going to walk away. Now, I think that that had a role uh, in sort of the, uh, well, I think the disillusion uh, yeah. of our many young people today when it comes to, you know, capitalism, et cetera, because they say, okay, I see how this works. Nobody yeah. who's rich has to pay for the stupidity. Now, in, in uh, you know, Iceland didn't do that. They actually jailed the bankers, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> and Iceland bounced back just fine. Yeah. In other words, it, it didn't have it have didn't have to happen the way it did in the United yeah. States. Um, those criminals, you know, could they, have been and should have been, uh, yeah. you know. But 
but they we were looking out for the other criminals that were that, bailing that's them out. That's right. That's right. So now, uh, be that as it may, I think that what that means is is that there is a long fuse here to this bomb. Yes. And it, and you and I are probably not going to see it blow up. You know, it's, it's probably right. beyond the you know the horizon of our lifetimes. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I see that. Um, I, I think just in terms of the way I see on a popular level, um, the way in which everything has to be explained within the, the a kind of reductionism that, that really is, is deliberately causing people to not be able to, to grapple with basic reality. Right, right. Um, that, that reality is such that it's going to push against that. So, yeah, you're going to have to go in directions of either more and more control, which the mechanisms are there, I think. Yep. But you can't, you, you're, the imagination is going to have to come up with a lot more than, than what's been happening in order to, to make... Yeah. I, now, now, this kind of gets us into a whole other matter. I, yeah. I personally believe that this whole COVID uh, shamdemic, I heard yeah. that phrase used the other way, <laughs> other day, and I thought it was great, the shamdemic. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere I go, uh, where the institutions, and I don't name them, and I don't post where, you know, I see these things on social media because I want to protect these yeah. havens of sanity. <laughs> but wherever I go, where they ignore all that stuff, people are healthy, the institutions are growing. Yeah. So, uh, I think that we had a... Uh, an opportunity here to exercise a little bit of common sense on the ground, and we've failed massively. Yeah. We've failed massively, and it's 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 putting us in a position uh, of vulnerability. Uh, I think our I think the institutions that could resist have been weakened, hmm. deeply weakened. Yeah. And because they're they're weakened right now because they don't even meet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, or they're they're meeting on on. Uh, in ways that are controlled by the very people that uh, we should be most concerned about. Yeah, obviously. Well, we, you, know you, you actually have to take this back a couple of steps because we've been living in a a culture that's been dominated by the cult of safety. Yes. And anything that makes you feel safe is good, and anything that makes you feel unsafe is bad, and you must run and hide from it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it all kind of plays plays into kind of a larger framework. By the way, I want to I want to before I forget because a little while back we talked about the sort of the sort of the crazy cult of of equality. <laughs> I want to introduce uh, folks in podcast land to a great great story by Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> Harrison Bergeron. It's a very short story. It's found in his uh, Welcome to the Monkey House collection of short <laughs> stories. But uh, Harrison Bergeron is is uh, it's darkly comic. But everything that that Vonnegut wrote was darkly comic. You know, <laughs> he wrote Slaughterhouse Five. Then he, yeah. So anyway, um, here's the here are the first two paragraphs of Harrison Bergeron. The year was 2081, and everyone was finally equal. <laughs> there weren't only they weren't only equal before God and the law; they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution. <laughs> and to the unceasing vigilance of the agents of the United States Handicapper General. <laughs> Diana Moon Glampers is her name. It, can tell you, it tells you everything you need to know about her in the story. But anyway, the second paragraph. Some things about living weren't quite right, though. <laughs> April, for instance, still drove people crazy for not being springtime. <laughs> and it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bert Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. Hmm. Now, in the story, I'll give it away. I'm not one of these people who, who honors, you know, uh, anything related to spoilers. I, I spoil movies for people without, without any... You know, qualms and conscience. <laughs> so the story goes is that Harrison is seven feet tall, incredibly powerful and athletic, and is the smartest man in the world. So not only is he the best looking man, the most physically powerful man, hmm. and uh, the best looking man, uh, he, and, and for all those reasons, he's public enemy number one. <laughs> It'd be right higher for the ladies' tennis team. <laughs> but what happens in the story is that uh, he uh, he escapes, 
and he breaks into a, uh, a television broadcast that's actually sending out a warning to the entire population of the United States that Harrison Bergeron is on the loose. <laughs> and he breaks in and he declares himself emperor of the world. <laughs> anyway, I won't tell you how the story ends. You need to, you need to read that part for yourself. But, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, but it's intended to be a parody, not only of, of equalitarians, but also of Nazis. It's sort of the sort of the fascist sort of cult of this of the Superman. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So it's both. It's, bo- it's both. It's both. It's both. And the passivity yeah. of the population, because yeah. in the story, George and Hazel see their son killed on television, hmm. and can't bring themselves to do anything about it for a variety of reasons. And and you see that I mean Nietzsche, for example, who was I think another one telling us about this moment long ago, but that was one of the things that his his Ubermensch basically did was also this retrieval of heroic value. I mean, for him, non-Christian values because right. they were the very thing that this weakness was trying. I mean, it, when the, the what he what Nietzsche called sort of the the um, the slave psychology aims to guilt the powerful. Into, from their place of privilege, if you will. Right. Uh, he called that sort of a Christian guilting. And in a sense, it works off of that in, right. in a perverted form. Um, but this, the slave revolt, once it does it, well, when Ubermensch comes along, is no, no longer worried, uh, suffers from that guilt consciousness, right? Yeah. But, but what it is that drives them not only is their ability to, to not, not worry about being beyond good and evil, but it's also their embodiment of this kind of strong virtue. And, and I think that's what, what you see, when so much failure and lack of courage and, and genuine virtues right. are not exhibited, not in the church, not anywhere else, that's the kind of stirring you start to get in those that can't, can't take the direction anymore. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna wrap up in a few minutes with some reflections on that, but I wanna spend a little bit of time uh, talking about Sheilaism because you can't talk about habits of the heart and Robert Bella without addressing Sheilaism. Now, Sheilaism, for the for listeners in Pug Class land who are not familiar with this, this is kind of a shorthand for customized personal religion, and it's it comes actually out of an interview that the uh, sociologist conducted with a woman named Sheila, <laughs> and they're asking Sheila, uh, her name is Sheila Larson, by the way, and they're asking her about uh, her life and what she thinks and what she believes. Uh, here's the description, and along with a quote. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful way to set it up. <laughs> she, uh, let's see. Uh, and who describes her faith as, quote, Sheilaism, end of quote. She goes on to say, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, <laughs> my own little voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, I tell you what, Sheila and the Sheilas of the world who are listening to this podcast, which probably aren't many because they're not the sort of people who listen to podcasts like this, but uh, your voice won't tear, carry you anywhere. It yeah. won't carry you anyway because um, it's insubstantial and it's not in touch with reality. And, but mm-hmm. but I want to I finish with this. Um, there are many churches that cater to Sheila. In fact, Sheila is their target. And they try to sort of mold and shape the Christian faith and squeeze it into Sheilaism. Yes. And anything that doesn't fit is just left out. Yeah, yeah this, 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 you know, expressive self or whatever you want to call it, um, that Sheilaism really, really is, is trying to capture is so fostered by so much of the, the kind of modern or postmodern expressions of Christian faith, evangelicalism. And so it's a very, you, I watch people step from this kind of Sheilaism approach to the happy, clappy church that yep. surrounds all their likes and their wants and their, yep. th- themselves, yep. their expression of their faith. Yep. And then it moves right to the, you know, all of a sudden they're 
taking yoga classes. I'm onto the yoga <laughs> thing. But the next thing, they're taking kind of strange yoga classes. Yeah, yeah. Next yeah. thing you know, they're criticizing the evangelical church for not accepting other yoga. self yoga <laughs> selves. But then they specifically move to, goat yoga. <laughs> that's right, goat yoga and whatever else. They, it gets weirder. I've seen and I've heard and seen. Yeah, but yeah. but what ends up happening is then I've watched them go away from the church because the church has become it, it, it's hypocritical because it wants to value the self and promote this self, but on the other hand, it wants to put limits around it. And for people that don't fit into the church's accepted expressions of self, all of a sudden they see that. So next thing you know, they're they're either abandoning Christianity yep. Yep. altogether or they're going to churches that have abandoned Christianity <laughs> altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah, X, Y, Z... You know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to see the names that churches give themselves that are new church. But you know, we don't want to be associated with uh, some denomination like Baptist or Presbyterian. So we're going to name ourselves exactly the same name as that XYZ mega church in the other part of the country. <laughs> new Life River whatever. <laughs> River of... <laughs> well, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it, 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 all this stuff is just... Uh, layer upon layer of self-deception and nonsense. But I want, uh, uh, go ahead. Well, that was a, a quick point. I mean, and it, maybe uh, Glenn has uh, a kind of historical aspect to this, but isn't, isn't this also very much tied to the way in which that denominational name, which used to be front and center, is tucked yeah. away and gone? Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't it, isn't it the same, same set of cultural forces? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. What, I, what I'm struck by through all this is, I think it was C.S. Lewis, I'm, I'm not sure, I've been reading a lot of different people lately, and I think we've talked about this before. He said that it used to be that the goal of the person was to align themselves yes. with reality. Right. Now the goal is to get reality to align with the self. That's I mean, exactly it. Gross yeah. paraphrase, but no, yeah. I, I, yeah, yes. I think it's a fair paraphrase. I, I know the, the the statement that you're referring to, and I think you've captured it really well. Yeah, I I, I think that you know as we think about Sheilaism, and we as we think about how to how to respond to this just complete self-absorption that we, we see around us? Um, you know, on the one, you know, we've got plenty of bi biblical material to work with, um, and I'm all for using it. Um, but I also think that we have uh, a you know sort of a set of resources that are even you know uh, beyond or outside of those those resources, and we shouldn't flinch from using those. Um, what I'm getting at is that what, what, what we have is uh, something we've, we've talked about before in other shows, and just I've mentioned it already today, is kind of we're living on the, on the capital of the past. Um, the people who founded the institutions that we uh, have uh, which uh, secure a, uh, you know, a, a way of life and a, and a political constitution that we enjoy, we would not come up with today. That's what I'm getting at when we're talking about living on the capital of the past. Those institutions were, were created by a very different set of people, very much either biblical individualists or Republican individualists or some combination of the two. They weren't the others. You know, maybe you can argue that Franklin was a proto-utilitarian, and I think it's probably the best way to, to think of him. But you know, I think that the sort of example that of, of, of Franklin, I think perhaps is a little unfortunate. There could have been others like, I don't know, P.T. Barnum or something. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, because he had enough of the others, you know, other things still resident in him that, that you could identify those things in him. But, but what that means is that the new institutions, the institutions that we're founding now uh, really do reflect the more modern outlook. And they've got no capacity to, to, to kind of take us through the dark times that I think are already upon us and I don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, um, I mean, one of the things we oftentimes is, you know, Protestants and, and Reformed in particular sometime from, from a theological critique is that, you know, open the door through its embrace of nominalism to basically this notion of, of Christian individuality. And, and, you know, there's some fair criticism when you look at how many Protestant denominations there are. Yeah, right. You know, everyone's open, you know, you know can, can basically interpret the Bible their own way, right? 
Um, but I think that's, first of all, I think it's unfair, and I don't think it, it was in any sense in line with what the, with the Reformation and Protestantism and its original um, vision set out. It saw itself as a renewal movement within classic Christianity, which meant classic Christianity governed its, its right. um, reading frame. But as that, that, that setting loosens up, then something else starts to fill it very slowly, and these are these shifting ideas, and this mm -hmm. is something this show is always trying to unpack. As these ideas come in, it is easy to slip from biblical notions of the dignity of the human, the human individual, the priesthood of all believer, to these different, these different yeah, senses, yeah. because it, it's happening so subtly at times yeah, right. that, that it's easy to stop. And so I think what you're seeing now is a dividing line happen, because you're either going to run one way or the other. You don't. You don't have these these kind of overlap areas. Right. Right. Um, it's it's you're going to you're going to radically, you're going to understand the human being radically different, human identity radically different if you move in the direction that expressivism is ending up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we should probably kind of bring this plane in for a landing. <laughs> yeah. Couple, you got something you want to couple, say, Glenn, and we're eager to hear it. A couple of quick ideas. Um, first of all. In the real critical theory world these days, you've moved past expressive individualism yeah. mm -hmm. into what with the concept of intersectionality that's usually used with respect to oppression. But another dimension of it is that everything that is true about you is true because of the particular set of approved classes that you're in. Right, right. You know, you, you think the way you think because you are... Uh, this race and that uh, gender, any of these 60-some-odd that they've got defined, you are, you know, on and on and on, all of these right. different things. And so all you are is the product of your intersectional categories. You are no longer an individual. Right. You are also no longer part of a universal. Mm, so yeah. it, it's a radically different way of seeing the world that goes against everything in of the Western tradition going back to the Greeks. The distinction between universals and particulars, for example, is in critical theory false. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The other thing that is worth noting is that wokeism is a Christian heresy. Yeah, yeah. And Nietzsche is the one who really points that out, this concern for the weak, concern for the oppressed, mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Even though he really distorts what Christianity is, what he says is actually very true of wokeism, mm -hmm. and it does have Christian roots. Um, in previ previous, prior to Christianity, other cultures would have looked at what what they're arguing and found it baffling or laughable right. because the strong deserve to rule. Yeah, or or yeah. the strong just are needed to rule because we have to actually enforce laws around here and mm -hmm. keep the bad guys from taking our stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, so this idea of concern for the weak and the oppressed and things like that—it's really, it's really comes from Christianity. Yeah. 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 So, any thoughts you want to give us as we wrap up, Tom? No, there was there was a lot there. I just I guess what, what one idea that, that that came when Glenn was mentioning that is when you you do get to a place at which you you start to lose a self, and you get to start to become defined from the outside by a group and someone defining that group, as we're seeing with intersectionality, you're, you are placed in the very easily manipulatable. And oh, I yeah. think that's kind of end on that. I think that's where yeah. all of this stuff ends up. Well, and my, my final thought on the matter is that uh, the older views, both the biblical and the Republican, looked to the abilities and strengths of, the, of individuals and how those abilities and strengths could enrich the community. So the community uh, is the place that is strengthened through the uh, exercise of individual gifts in a wide range of, of areas, but everybody is valuable, everybody makes a contribution, uh, and the contributions are different though. They're not, they're not exactly the same, they're based upon you know, what you bring to the community, uh, either because of the gifting of you know, the spirit, you know, spiritual gifts, or just because of natural talents and abilities. But uh, that, that way of thinking has completely been lost. Wokeism does not make an argument at all for the gifts that weak people bring to, the, to a community. Their only service is to uh, be weak so that the people who are not weak, I guess, can feel good about themselves by helping them and 
and while there's a strange sort of um, inversion of Christian values here, there, I don't think it has legs. I don't think yeah, any, any way of thinking along those lines has any hope of surviving because it. it takes so much for granted. Let me just finish on this last thought. So I was in Seattle the other day. I've been in Portland a few times now, now that I'm in the Pacific Northwest. And yes, you know, you see the liberalism everywhere. You see all kinds of insanity. Uh, you see uh, bumper stickers and, and, and people living in the street and, and all that stuff. <laughs> but the thing that leapt out to me in both those places was the ubiquity of the guys, and there were always guys, in the yellow vests. Mm-hmm. Now, who are the guys in the yellow vests? Who are the men in the yellow vests? They're the construction workers. They're building the roads. They're building the skyscrapers. They're building, or in the, and they're cleaning up those areas where people have left debris and stuff. Hmm. And there were literally thousands of these guys in both those places. This, the economy in, in those two cities is still booming. Wow. You can put your house on the market in the Portland area, and tomorrow it will be hmm. under contract, probably multiple bids. Hmm. Partly because everybody's running from California. <laughs> <laughs> but they're bringing the disease with them, I think. That's what a lot hmm. of people think. But. But in order to make all this stuff work, those guys in the yellow vests are essential. But they're also invisible. And what I mean by invisible is that the woke crowd don't see them. Or if they do see them, all they see are white men that, that are probably Trump voters and probably people they ought to be afraid of. They don't see people who actually built the road or the buildings that they're sleeping on or attacking with Molotov cocktails. Yeah. <laughs> and who provide the places of employment for all those taxpayers that provide the funds that create the social services that these people rely upon every day to eat hmm. or whatever. Those are the guys that uh, I think, uh, as I think about this, who are making a contribution every day through their work. Now, they're, pro- they're just a lunch bucket crowd. They probably, you know, they probably don't think about themselves in those terms, except when people that, that sort of denigrate them, which happens a lot. Uh, but we need more of those guys and fewer of the other types. That's enough for me. We've gone over. We should wrap it up. All right. Thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast, folks, and we'll talk to you again another time. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye. man.